evening, uh, all of you for joining, uh, especially Taylor. Uh, we've got a bit of a guest speaker today, not to call you out too much, uh, but it's going to be nice to have a new set of eyes on a lot of this stuff. So thanks for joining today. Thanks for having me. So uh, today we're going to be continuing our reading of Anti-Oedipus, heading into Chapter 2, Section 4 on Disjunctive Synthesis. Uh, before we get going, a bit of housekeeping, not a terribly large amount. Uh, as always, we are... Uh, too many people and too few moderators, and we always can use a handful more people who can help us keep the server running, maybe help us put on some new talks, uh, keep things manageable, figure out how to do some cool shit around the server, whatever it may be. Feel free to let us know. Jump into the volunteer channel at the top here. Just give us a hey, and we'll jump in and talk with you. Uh, for today's talk, though, we will be sharing, I think, uh, Varun, do you want to share the Google Doc? Uh, in the uh, discussion chat so people can follow along. Uh, we've switched over a little bit to some, a little bit of a different process. Uh, we're gonna be basically going through as we did yesterday, a little bit of a reading through the chapter and talking through at a decent clip, given the size of this chapter, some of the core concepts and ideas inside of each paragraph and moving on. As you guys go, don't hesitate to toss into the discussion chat. Hey, I have a question, I have a thought. Uh, we will address everyone we can. Uh, as we get going. Uh, but for now, uh, before we jump in, I wanted to start with uh, the words disjunctive synthesis and having a discussion around what exactly that means, because it's it's a term that is assumed that you are familiar with before you get into this. And uh, it is one that I will gladly admit uh, I was not super familiar with. Uh, so does someone want to jump in and give us a wonderful interpretation of what a disjunctive synthesis might be, Kent? Well, um, the, uh, you know, if you, if you go back to logic, um, you can see that, uh, you know, logic is made up of uh, three different operations, which are conjunction, disjunction, and not. And uh, most logics are built out of those three different operations. So, uh, you know, uh, conjunction is is normally uh, and, and that's a problem here because the, the term conjunction is used for something else in anti-Oedipus. But um, and is normally conjunction, disjunction is or, and then there's not. So, um, so you know, disjunction normally just means that you have a statement with ors in it. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the normal normal meaning of it. Uh, Deleuze, of course, ha has a different meaning of it uh, in the sense that he's saying that there's or and or and or and or, uh, a series of ors rather than just uh, one or and two variables. But specifically the phrase disjunctive synthesis, how I've kind of come to understand it, and I'll try to put it in different words, uh, is along the line of uh, maybe two items that do not seem to fit together yet uh, we're able to combine in some way where we're able to see connections between them. Uh, this, a, this, this is good. This is good. You guys are great. Uh, Kent, you were great to go to Logic. Uh, Brooks, I appreciate the, the addendum. And I think that Deleuze is, is, is taking the phrase strictly from Kant, right? And where Kant sees dis, disjunctive synthesis as merely exclusive, right? So that, you know, it, it, the, the ors are always excluded from the other ors. It's always a choice. It's always a, you know, it's always man, woman. It's always 
father, son, it's always, you know, et cetera. So um, I think there is where the inclusivity of disjunctive synthesis for Deleuze is, I think, I think this is, this is where uh, he's already pointed to this in logic of sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, and I think that Guattari takes this up. And so like, you also see this in a thousand plateaus with the rhizome that the, uh, the connective synthesis, the that's non-specific, it, the and 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 is is also um, sort of resonating with the inclusive disjunction, the or or or, and it's it's the intermezzo, it's the it's the milieu, it's the intermediate, so it's the, the seemingly paradoxical connection between things. It, it, they they get into that and they use that phrase throughout the rest of this section. Uh, the, yes, finding the paradox, finding those things that. Obviously, can't logically go together, but somehow they do. And I think there's a lot of that sort of terminology. So it's again, obviously, it's the title of the section. Uh, but I wanted to make sure we got a chance to uh, uh, go over the term before I dove in and started reading. Uh, and uh, with that, I think I actually will. Uh, when Oedipus slips into the disjunctive synthesis of desiring recording, it imposes the ideal of a certain restrictive or exclusive use on them that becomes identical with the form of triangulation, being daddy, mommy, or child. This is the reign of the either-or in the differentiating function of the prohibition of incest. Here is where mommy begins. There, daddy, and there you are. Stay in your place. Oedipus's m- misfortune is indeed that it no longer knows who begins where nor who is who, and being parent or child is also accompanied by two other differentiations on the other side of the triangle, being man or woman, being dead or alive. Oedipus must not know whether it is alive or dead, man or woman, any more than it knows whether it is parent or child. Commit incest and you'll be a zombie and a hermaphrodite. In this sense, indeed, the three major neuroses that are termed familial seem to correspond to Oedipal lapses in the differentiating function or in the disjunctive synthesis. The phobic person can no longer be sure whether he is parent or child, the obsessed person whether he is dead or alive, the hysterical person whether he is man or woman. In short, the familial triangulation represents the minimum condition under which an ego takes on the coordinates that differentiate it at one and the same time with regard to generation, sex, and vital state. And the religious triangulation confirms this result in another mode. Thus in the Trinity, the obliteration of the feminine image in favor of the phallic symbol demonstrates how the triangle displaces itself towards its own cause and attempts to integrate it. This time, it is a matter of the maximum conditions under which persons are differentiated. Hence the importance of the Kantian definition that posits God as the a priori principle of the disjunctive syllogism, so that all things derive from it by a restriction of a larger reality. Kant's humor makes God into the master of syllogism. And I know yesterday, Freen, uh, not Freen, um, Varun and uh, a few others had a lot of thoughts on a lot of the section. So let's go ahead and uh, just jump through a little bit. The the second sentence there, this is the reign of the either or in the differentiating function, the prohibition of incest. Uh, Varun, you had thoughts on that that you brought out yesterday? Yeah. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. All right, great. Uh, so... Uh, they're sort of, I, I saw them as teasing the whole idea of the prohibition of incest with its direct connection to a double bind here. Um, 
But what I understood essentially from that idea of uh, referring to Kant's disjunctive syllogism is, uh, well, at least one way to look at it would be to see design production as Kant's proof of the world and uh, and and uh, the body without organs and the disjunctive syllogism specifically responding to Kant's proof of God. Um, so one, one way I was understanding all of this was essentially looking at how Especially when, when when something slips into a disjunctive synthesis, it turns into the very almost I don't want to say essence, but like the sort of the heart of the of all the of the type of production that's at the, that's that happens at a specific moment in time, and uh, there's a set of coordinates that gets created based on I forgot the exact quote, but it's from the old Body Without Organs chapter where they talk about essentially when uh, machines attach themselves to the Body Without Organs, they create a set of coordinates. So that's how I was understanding uh, Oedipus in this case. It was essentially attaching itself to the Body Without Organs and creating a restricted set of uh, coordinates where there would be an either or possibility of uh, selection for desiring production to occur. well, so what I'm what I'm seeing specifically here is that Oedipus is what causes those specific coordinates to be in place at a specific moment in time, and uh, you know, uh, I think as they described it with capital, it, there's a what happens is there's a miraculating machine that gets created where it appears as if all production emanates from it, and uh, it almost it almost appears as Oedipus is that one thing. It, it, it makes Oedipus look primordial due to, the, due to the coordinates that gets in place. One thing that I, I'd like to say that is just been reminded, uh, been reminded of is, uh, you know, uh, triangulation is a, um, a fundamental operation in surveying. And so like when they, when they took India, um, they, surveyed the entire country with chains and they used chains to create triangles across the whole country. And so, uh, and it was a gigantic operation to uh, triangulate India. And, and on the basis of that, the uh, private property was established in India. And, um, and so, and so when you think about it, triangulation is a fundamental operation by which we survey any surface. It's how it's how we know our location in regards to anything. It's, it's the basic thing. You, two points can't give you a true location of a thing. Three does. And I think that line uh, that Jack uh, points out, the familial triangulation represents the minimum condition under which an ego takes on coordinates that differentiate it at one at the same time with regard to generation, sex, and vital state. It's my place in these three uh, as being in relation to Oedipus is what actually allows the ego to exist at its first bare minimum, a priori core set. Uh, but I, I, get, I guess what, what I was saying is that the triangulation becomes the, the ability to create a field or a landscape and bring it under control. Well, I think, I think control is, is implicit in a lot of what they're talking about here. So yeah, I think I think for sure. But uh, I, I would add the the thing that I how I read this this uh, paragraph that they're really trying to get across is that at the basic level, what Oedipus does is it gives us the triangulation that allows the ego to exist at its basic level. This is that first thing, but it also is missing a ton of other information 
and because Oedipus doesn't isn't allowed to know a certain other things uh, that are in regards to it. Is that a fair reading? Yeah, that makes sense. And if I can add something, so this, this is part of a critique of. I mean, so I'm not people saying the obvious here. Part of a critique of Oedipus, right? Um, is precisely that. Um, the unconscious doesn't really operate like this, or not inherently. Um, the unconscious, if you know, without Oedipus, in theory, the, the idea is that it's it's not an exclusive uh, disjunction, right? It's an open-ended, it can continuous set of ores evaluated in a chain which are all equally valid and value and and and, and legitimate, right? Um, and the whole problem, it seems to me, for classical uh, time of Oedipus is precisely that it restricts that um, disjunctive um, uh, synthesis, right? It limits you between to making these choices between two binaries, um, it, you know, well, between one, two options in a single binary, right? You're either uh, mummy or daddy, or either um, dead or alive, whatever. You can't be like a third option, a third term in the series. You can't be a little bit of that and a little bit of the other one. Um, and that's why for them, Lepanatus um, and Oedipus is so, um, it was one of the, one of the uh, mistakes that it makes is that it imposes these restrictions upon the unconscious and forces it to make exclusive use of this synthesis when in reality it's, it should be underlying it. So is that, is, is, that where the, is that the meaning behind the sentence, commit incest and you'll be a zombie in a hermaphrodite? If you, if you place yourself literally in that one corner, uh, you're both alive and dead at the same time and male and female at the same time because that's yeah. essentially how the triad works I think so that's that's the, that's, that's the only sort of little bit of there which which I, I I was having a bit of trouble sort of piecing together well, no because you're, 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 you're between those two coordinates right so like if if we're supposed to take uh Kent's advice uh and and look at this through like uh the lens of triangulation we would find ourselves between that polarity right um uh, a, a zombie and a hermaphrodite um so so i think i think that's right yeah okay and, got i it. think your analysis of it is correct as well i mean I, I i i would only say that that's only on the the molar level right that it's on the molar level that we we come upon the paradox it's it's the molecular level you know the for Guattari, it's it's this question of the abstract quanta of possibles that 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 swings us from the molar to the molecular, right? That it's on the molecular level that things become fuzzy in the mathematical sense. Well, and, I, and I, they definitely do get into that, and uh, because we are going to have so much discussion around what molar and molecular means in about five paragraphs here, because we had a, we had a bit of an argument last night around that too, um, because it's it's they're 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 talking about I think at this point very much the molar. I just want to make sure I'm just saying I'm agreeing with you. Um, but I'm going to dive into the next paragraph though because I think it continues some of what we're starting to say. Um, the action characteristic of Oedipal recording is the introduction of an exclusive restrictive and negative use of the disjunctive synthesis. We are so molded by Oedipus that we find it hard to imagine another use, and even the three familiar neuroses do not escape this use, although they suffer from no longer being capable of applying it. 
everywhere in psychoanalysis, in Freud, we have seen this taste for exclusive disjunctions assert itself. It becomes nevertheless apparent that schizophrenia teaches us a singular extra-edible lesson and reveals to us an unknown force of the disjunctive synthesis, an imminent use that would no longer be exclusive or restrictive, but fully affirmative, non-restrictive, inclusive, a disjunction that remains disjunctive and that still affirms the disjoined terms, that affirms them through their entire distance without restricting one by the other or excluding the other from the one is perhaps the greatest paradox, either or or instead of either. Well, I think that, you know, one thing that we should uh, see here is that, um, you know, I mean, they're like finding a, a little chink in logic that hasn't really been explored before as far as I know. And that's the whole idea that instead of just two terms in, a, in an either or situation, you, you have this continual production of disjunction, just like you had this uh, continual production of mm-hmm. uh, 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 conjunction. Uh, with the and 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 the or 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 so so it's it's just interesting that they found a little escape from the normal view of logic which is an either or kind of uh, view the sentence I really want to also focus on here is we are so molded by Oedipus we find it hard to imagine another use it's the uh, blinded by knowledge and things you know because uh, like the body without organs it falls back on everything it encompasses all so we and that's why they call Oedipus the body without organs for psychoanalysis uh, throughout this that there's that uh, this is the triangle this is how things work there is nothing beyond that and I, I brought up last night and I still think it's apropos the uh, the way that they're thinking about this is similar to uh, the old the book from about 20 years ago called The Black Swan, uh, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with, if not all. Uh, but the idea was for a very long time, they didn't use the term white swan because all swans were white as far as they knew. And one day they traveled halfway around the world and found their first black swan. It changed how they thought about everything. Suddenly they had to say black swan and white swan. And it's that that knowledge you don't realize that you don't know things you don't know you don't know. And that is very much, I think, what they're saying here when they're talking about we are so molded by Oedipus. We find it hard to imagine another use that it is such a framework that people are stuck within that there simply can't be anything else besides that. What else? Would I, there be? I, I think that's why uh, your and Matt's comment about uh, uh, presupposing the unconscious around the Oedipal is is the fundamental restrictive operation of psychoanalysis. I, I, I think that that earlier conversation you and Matt had uh, nails that pretty well. Yeah, for sure. Hey, anyone want to read the next section? Doug, how about you? Sure. <clears throat> the schizophrenic is not man and woman. He is man or woman, but he belongs precisely to both sides. Man on the side of men, woman on the side of women. Likeable Jayette, Albert Desire, matriculation number 54161001, intones the litany of the parallel series of the masculine and the feminine, and places himself on both sides. Matalbert, 5416, Ricule, Sultan Romain Vessim, Matt Desire, 1001, Ricula, Sultan Romain Vessim, Matt Albert, 5416, Ricula, the insane Roman Sultan, Matt Desire, 1001, Ricula, the insane Roman Sultaness. The schizophrenic is dead or alive, not both at once, but each of the two as the terminal point of a distance over which he glides. He is child or parent, not both. 
but the one at the end of the other, like the two ends of a stick in a non-decomposable space. This is the meaning of the disjunctions where Beckett records his characters and the events that befall them. Everything divides, but into itself. Even the distances are positive, at the same time as the included disjunctions. So I, I, thank you for reading that, Doug. We we were debating on who was going to be cursed with having to read that today. So yeah, I realized as soon as I got into that, I was like, oh, goodness. Oh, God, this is that section that Brooke started acting like he was smelling burnt toast. Um, it's a... Uh, it's actually once we read this four or five times, the the middle section where he's it's all in parentheses. Albert Desire matriculation number. Uh, the the thing to understand specifically what they're doing here is uh, Albert Desire matriculation number five four one six one zero zero one is the name that he uses and the very specific order of how. Uh, he is called by the people on in his life. Then it talks about how no, he can place himself on both sides, and literally the rest of this is almost a word a word jumble that is just making the point that however he may want to place himself, he's still the same thing. He's reordering things. It's playing with the concept of either or or just with uh, the things you may call Albert Desire and his matriculation number. Uh, it's actually a really cute little mini joke, but it took seriously way too long last night for us to realize that. <laughs> yeah, I'm just catching on right now that the stuff in the parentheses is partially translating the French into English. Yes, and I, I cannot imagine the nightmare that had to be to translate. <laughs> um, but no, it's uh, again, going back to the, the idea that uh, people are able to be both uh, and, and, and exist in kind of this disjunctive place. Uh, is very unique, and it's and it's playing in this in the realm of uh, what the schizophrenic is and how schizoanalysis uh, can play out. Um, yeah, it's like so. That's what they're saying with the two ends of a stick in a non-decomposable space. The schizophrenic is the the whole stick bridging the gap between both sides, and uh, that's the problem with Oedipus in the paragraph above. Is this disjunction that remains disjunctive, or, or that doesn't? I, I mean, uh, that yeah. Oedipus covers this distinction instead of affirming it and showing us how to bridge the gap. How about you, yeah. Jay? Sorry, Varun, go for it. Uh, yeah, I mean, the the fundamental part about the body without organs is that it's it's virtual energy. So uh, the way disjunctions occur is that I guess it, it's 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 through those breakdowns. It's what fundamentally allows the creation of the new. Yeah, I, I just want to say one thing that interests me too is since we're talking about syllogisms and logic, and Kant's privileging of God as the a priori that he can deduce and induce from, and use that to explain things. And, right. So, as Kim was saying, through logic, you can start developing a structure, and you can use or statements to parse out what things have to be. Right. So, if, if you're in the Oedipal structure rather than the uh, the Kantian structure for God. You start making or statements, right? That you're you're either parent or child, but you can't be both. And then you get into the problem of if you're parent, are you male or female? Um, in the same way, you kind of see the way out of this is like if you start making those segmentations of the ors and you start partitioning a whole, if you start splitting Oedipus like that, even you start developing new things that don't quite. Uh, that start expanding what's possible in that space, right? So, like, with with Matt Desire, you have the, the expansion of the identity 
of the person through the bisecting. And then you have new holes and new parts being created that way. So the, the whole logical process stops working in terms of deduction, induction, like a ladder, and starts flattening out in, in terms of a more horizontal space. Mm. Mm. Well, one one thing I one thing I'd like to mention is that uh, one way of thinking about this is in terms of like a spreadsheet. So uh, you know you can have the um, you know the the conjunctive synthesis is like the chain. So a chain in a row or a chain in a column. But the disjunctive synthesis is when you move from uh, from uh, say you have a chain in a row. So when you move down to the next row and the next row and the next row and the next row, that's the disjunctive synthesis. Or if you've got a column, as you move over from the uh, the one column you're in, the you know the con- the connections between the one column you're in to the next column, that's that's the disjunction. And so, what's interesting about it is that the disjunction forms a grid when it's applied in 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 uh, two dimensions. No, I, and I I've always liked to. Um, one of the visuals I've always liked for disjunctive synthesis and disjunctions here is uh, shadow art, where, uh, and you can do some very clever versions of this, where from one direction the light casts across a number of objects that seem like they're haphazardly thrown together, uh, it casts a shadow of a shape that is very clear, a woman standing, but a light from another direction casts the very same across the uh, objects. Uh, but makes a an animal, a tree, or some other thing that seems incongruous with being the same set of objects, but they are. Uh, what is a good one, Shadow Art? There's a lot of really amazing pieces that have done this. It would be a total misunderstanding of this order of thought if we concluded that the schizophrenics substituted vague syntheses of identification of contradictory elements for disjunctions, like the last of the Hegelian philosophers. He does not substitute syntheses of contradictory elements for disjunctive syntheses. Rather, for the exclusive and restrictive use of the disjunctive synthesis, he substitutes an affirmative use. He is and remains in disjunction. He does not abolish disjunction by identifying the contradictory elements by means of elaboration. Instead, he affirms it through a continuous overflight, which is survey, serval, spanning an indivisible distance. He is not simply bisexual or between the two or intersexual. He is transsexual. He is trans alive, a dead, is transparent child. He does not reduce two contraries to an identity of the same. He affirms their distance as that which relates the two as different. He does not confine himself in, inside contradictions. On the contrary, he opens out and like a spore case inflated with spores, releases him so many singularities that he improperly shut off, some of which he intended to exclude while remaining others, while retaining others, but which now become point signs, all affirmed by their new distance. The disjunction being now inclusive does not closet itself inside its own terms. On the contrary, it is non-restrictive. Quote, I was then no longer this closed box to which I owed being so well preserved, but a partition came crashing down, unquote. An event that will liberate a space where Malloy and Moran no longer designate persons, but singularities flocking from all sides, evanescent agents of production. 
This is free disjunction. The differential positions persist in their entirety. They even take on a free quality, but they are all inhabited by a faceless and transpositional subject. Schraber is man and woman, parent and child, dead and alive, which is to say he is situated wherever there's a singularity in all the series and in all the branches marked by a singular point because he hits himself this distance that transforms him into a woman. And at its terminal point, he is already the mother of a new humanity and can finally die. We decided this is one of our favorite sets of lines in this entire chapter. So uh, because he himself is the distance that transforms him into a woman, that the, the place of the schizo is not someone who is trapped by this paradox, but instead embraces the realities of it and the distance he is from both sides. He is between alive and dead. He is not one or the other, but he is not living in a paradox of some synthesis that combines the two, but instead very aware that he exists between them uniquely and oddly, and he positively enjoys this out. Uh, I, I just love this entire section. But we had a lot of thoughts uh, last night on it. Uh, Varun, I wanted to go over one of the lines uh, I quoted you last night. Um, the disjunctive synthesis is the disjunction which allows the creation of the new. It is that moment of the, 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 the parts that are broken being synthesized that allow the creation of the new. Did you want to expand on that at all? Or did Varun leave? We lost Varun. <sighs> I'm talking to nobody. That's okay. Uh, anyone else have comments on this section? <laughs> yeah, so I do actually. I was thinking about the. Um, I think it might have been at the end of the last chapter when he's talking about. Um, I, actually, I, I, mean, I think it might. Be, I, was, I was having trouble finding it. But there's a point at which Deleuze and Guattari start talking about the way in which this disjunction, this exclusive disjunction, works, which is that even if you accept, like, even if you just hypothetically accept that this is how it works. Um, you always end up with many more possibilities than just two, right? Um, because uh, every every single division ends up breaking down into two or four more divisions um, between uh, man and woman, homosexual, heterosexual, and so on. Um, even if you accept the, the way in which this proceeds, it never entirely manages to um, uh, completely capture the the flows which are trying to escape this restrictive. Um, this restrictive uh, edible synthesis, I think. Um, I'd love to find that uh, passage, and maybe I will in a moment. But um, I think that that's, I think that's 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 what's coming up here as well. Um, it's that there's always something which which can which sort of escapes. Um, that's how how it works, I think. For, for well, and and I think it's worth going over because everyone in chat's mentioning it as the line. Um, of contradictory elements for disjunctions like the last of the Hegelian philosophers is a little bit of a nose-thumbing moment at the sort of ludicrous side of uh, taking the thesis, antithesis, always blending into some new thing that is this perfect little thing of synthesis. And it's like, uh, it's not, we've kind of moved past that. <laughs> I kind of I like the little moment, personally. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, it's... it's uh, Love that thought. Any other thoughts before we move on? So, just so I can and clarify mine, that would the, would the thought be there that um, the reason why it's a kind of a dig at um, uh, a dialectical approach is that uh, the schizo moves beyond the idea that these contradictions um, even get resolved into some kind of um, 
internally coherent uh, structure. It, it's yes, I, 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 the way the way I read it is. Um, if we want to talk about this in terms of points, uh, the classic Hegelian synthesis is you have two points, you blend them together until they're one point uh, on, say, a, a map. And so that's the continually shifting reality of history is that we'd have these two points that combine and then they become one inside of each other. But they're they become part of a new uh, singular uh, uh Whereas the losing guitar, Guattari, what they're talking about here is actually, no, the, the two points stay separate and they are fully separate, but they are also combined sort of a, again, that weird paradox and that our placement is the distance, but the distance from them and between them is who we are and is who the, what the synthesis really is. That's how I read it. If I, if I may, the way I would uh, phrase it, I think Laura Wall has a good way of phrasing it, where it's it's no longer a duality of opposites. It's, it's now a duplicity uh, that doesn't come to the or, or is, is, is farther, is beyond the realm of contradictory relations, right? That duplicity is beyond mm. duality. Mm, yes. Sorry, the way that the way that I think about it is that there's always something other, you know, whatever the whatever the pair is that you're focusing on, then, you know, if you just move your attention to something else, it's a completely different thing. And you can just keep moving your attention to something else, which is a completely different thing. Hmm. No, so I, I, I think um for me, this, this is very much about when we're talking and they, they get into this a little bit later, but we're talking really ultimately about this triad of uh, Oedipus, uh, mother, father, child, uh, name of the mother, name of the father, if you want to go to the Canadian side. And that that thing that I am is determined by my placement on this very simple grid. And that thing that I am, even in really in Lacanian, but definitely in classic Oedipal psychoanalysis is I identify with myself in one of these places and because of that my neurosis is defined and I am defined by my neurosis based on where I am as a single point on this grid and they're saying no wait it's instead think about it differently and pull yourself away and think about the distance you have and that you can be between them that all people are ultimately should be between them that there is a repression that naturally happens when we place ourselves inside of that that we don't even realize is happening it's it's that moment of collapse into this uh, uh, to talk about possibility space collapsing that's what is happening here it is an insane amount of repression is how i'm reading this jack and, and to that point right if you were to try and do this kind of thing within the oedipal and all of a sudden your daddy or son and, and you have this synthesis going on that way through the distances and becoming that starts to kind of short circuit the oedipal which is i, I think just goes to strengthen their argument that you can't really oedipalize the schizo and I'm actually going to read uh, the next paragraph because it's, I think, more of this point. It doesn't make any new ones, but it definitely, I think, poetically talks about what we're talking about. Uh, 
That is why the schizophrenic god has so little to do with the god of religion, even though they are related to the same syllogism. In Le Baphomet, Klosowski contrasts God as the master of the exclusions and restrictions that derive from this disjunctive syllogism with an antichrist who is the prince of modifications, determining instead the passage of a subject through all possible predicates. I am God, I am not God. I am God, I am man. It is not a matter of a synthesis that would go beyond the negative disjunctions of the derived reality in an original reality of man-god, but rather of an inclusive disjunction that carries out the synthesis itself in drifting from one term to another and following the distance between terms. Nothing is primal. It is like the famous conclusion of Malloy. It is midnight. The rain is beating on the windows. It was not midnight. It was not raining. Nijinsky wrote, I am God, I was not God, I am clown of God. I am Apis, I am an Egyptian, I am a Red Indian, I am a Negro, I am a Chinaman, I am a Japanese, I am a foreigner, a stranger, I am a seabird, I am a land bird, I am the tree of Tolstoy, I am the roots of Tolstoy, I am husband and wife in one, I love my wife, I love my husband. Uh, really so can I like ask a question here? Please. Yeah, so I'm getting a little confused about the notion of this disjunction being inclusive as opposed to the Oedipalized disjunction because to me I'm picturing the Oedipalized disjunction is trying to include everything in it, right? It's trying to cover the whole map somehow. So in what sense is this one inclusive, whereas that one must not be? So Oedipal is it trying to include? But uh, I'll let someone else talk, sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, I was just saying the edible, the edible is trying to exclude in the sense that it's trying to detect, it's trying to discern, it's trying to uh, grid, as we've been talking about this gridding, it's trying to answer an either or question in sense of yes or no. So it has to, so an exclusive assumption answers yes or no based on the question man, woman, alive, dead, parent, child. And you have to answer yes or no. And that's where Watery will turn in Machine Unconscious and in uh, A Thousand Plateaus to this notion of bi univocalization, whereby uh, faciality answers this question for certain regimes of power, specifically capitalistic power significatory and subjective uh subjectifying regimes of 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 signs so inclusive disjunction doesn't answer yes or no it it doesn't have to that's not the question anymore that's no longer the problem the problem is no longer uh an exclusive yes or no the the problem uh, becomes freer, it becomes fractal, becomes more open-ended, and it doesn't have to say yes or no to a specified question. The questions are no longer posed in an in an, in an interrogative way as as answer yes or no to to discern yourself to 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 define yourself for the power formation that is asking the question. Does that make sense? I think so. Can I try to uh, summarize my understanding of that? Um, so, yeah, like the Oedipalized disjunction is uh, trying to restrict the either or to either yes, one pole or no, it's the other pole. Whereas, uh, you know, so it's sort of trying to include all the possibilities within that, but it's excluding all the different possible ways of understanding those. 
that uh, the full disjunctive synthesis allows us to uh, produce. Sounds right to me. I think part of the discussion of you know, what they call the skitter is the way in which um, unneedful desire doesn't operate in accordance with the idea that uh, you identify with one or the other, right? Um, for Oedip- in the Oedipus complex, you have to be one or the other, mother or father, you know, man, woman. Um, you can, you have to choose, and you can only choose one. And there are only two options, right? Um, and that's how it gets you. And what we want to say, I think, is that an, Oed- an Oedipal um, uh, desire is free to affirm both, right? Or a bit of both, or neither, right? Um, um, or to explore the boundaries between the two, between the, the, the spectrum, whatever, um, to fly over it. Um, and so this, this is part of, I think this is part of what they're saying in, in their critique of um, the illegitimate way that the Oedipus complex or psychoanalysis um, talks about the unconscious is that it traps the unconscious desire. Um, in this way, right, by, by forcing it to make these choices. And then, as we'll see later in the chapter, precisely at the moment where you refuse to make that choice, that's when they get you again, right? That's when they get you. Because if you don't make those choices, um, Oedipus is still waiting for you, right? With the threat of not being a differentiated subject at all. Um, <laughs> so within the evil triangle, in a way, it's it, he calls it a double bind, I think, right? A double bind. Um Either you pick one or the other, and if you refuse to terms of the question, that's fine. But you're still they're still going to put you on the analyst couch, and if you don't, um, you know, comply, then they're still going to call the police on you. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah it that's uh, really helpful, uh, Matt and Taylor. It almost reminds me of that old Smith, Smith song. Uh, I think uh, I think Morrissey sings something like, "A crack on the head is what you get for asking, and a crack on the head is what you get for not asking." Yeah. <laughs> uh, Smith. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, dive also into the next paragraph. We'll just keep uh, chugging along here because, uh, again, they make these points uh, quite a few times, and it's a refinement of them. And I really like this next chapter. as two sentences I really like. Uh, one is the opening one. What counts is not parental designations, nor racial or divine designations, but merely the use made of them. No problem of meeting, but only of usage. Nothing original or derived, but a generalized drift. It would seem the schizo liberates a raw genealogical material, non-restrictive, where he can situate himself, record himself, and take his bearings in all the branches at once on all sides. He explodes the Oedipal genealogy. Through graduated relationships, he performs absolute overflights spanning indivisible distances. The genealogist man-man lays out a disjunctive network on the body without organs, and God, who designates none other than the energy of recording, can be the greatest enemy in the paranoiac inscription, but also the greatest friend in the miraculating inscription. In any case, the question of a being superior to man and to nature does not arise here at all. Everything is on the body without organs, both what is inscribed and the energy that inscribes it. On the unengendered body, the non-decomposable distances are necessarily surveyed, while the disjoined terms are all affirmed. I am the letter and the pen and the paper. It was in this fashion that Ninjitsky kept his diary. Yes, I was my father, and I was my son. Uh, I do want to spend just a moment and talk about what is meant here by paranoiac inscriptions and miraculating inscriptions. Can anyone enlighten me on that? 
Yeah, that's something that came up in uh, the first chapter. Um, these are the two moments where the body without organs either attracts the desiring machines or repels them. Easy enough, thank you. No, I mean that's that's that's, that's very clear. Um, the paranoiac rejects all the the inscriptions and is is fighting against them and sort of repelling them. So it is a kind of uh, question of magnetic attraction and repulsion. And I, I would say that the the translation of overflight is is the same as survey. So if you notice in that paragraph this use of the noun and the verb, this is all language from Raymond Rouillet. This is all his language about uh, consciousness and this notion of a sort of auto survey. And um, this will come back up in what is philosophy and this question of of um, of I side the translators overflight or sort of a, a flying over, but it's it's a survey and it's 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 all from Rouillet and Laurel will sort of pick on this and sort of like attack it. So the, so. the, the term overflight then, because it that was in another paragraph. I noticed you, you brought up that it yeah, means it is, it is. Uh, that we're not talking about because overflight is a word that literally has no meaning to me. So the, the word <laughs> survey. The word, yeah, survey, the word survey does, though, and so uh, if we're talking about some kind of automatic survey or in, uh, a moment that I'm able to understand the territory I'm in, the, yes. that I'm able to see the whole thing and, and grab it uh, in my head, I'm able to sort of divine it. Is that the conception here, that uh, through these graduated relationships, he performs absolute understanding of everything that's around him spanning indivisible distances. Yeah, I mean, absolute survey is literally, like that's straight from Rouillet. And the fact that it's not, he's not cited here or even alluded to here is uh, just a, a one slight disservice to the translation. The translation of this book is very, very good. But this is one where, uh, this is one place where, um, Deleuze and Guattari don't really bring up Rie and don't they they don't want to bring in all that that baggage and all the pre um assumed understanding of what Rie is talking about and so they just kind mm-hmm. of say it so in the English when it's translated as overflight it, it, as you said it 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 doesn't signify it doesn't pass uh it doesn't it doesn't go and it doesn't really make any sense um because when it, yeah the french is serval vol is is a flight but it's also a, a theft and so it doesn't make sense at all but when you say serval it is it is a survey it is that that makes sense and um as you're saying there is this um there is a sort of we can talk about it as a, a as an overcoding because to a certain extent there is a question of coding and overcoding here, um, but it's not brought up in that language in this section. So I don't want to go too deep in that direction in that rabbit hole. But um, but yes, this question of an absolute survey with an indivisible distances. This is the. Um, a sort of autoposition of, of consciousness that Rie will define in various books. Um, one of which has been translated recently by uh, 
uh, Alyosha L. L. Debbie, and it's it's the neo finalism book. It's very good, and 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 it does help to elucidate a lot of Deleuze's positions. Um, I won't go too much into it here because I'm kind of taking us on a tangent, and so I apologize. Uh, <laughs> no, no, it's uh, I I would love it if if uh, afterwards you could send over uh, which book. Uh, that was so we can actually add it to our reading list because it feels like at least having a, a grasp of more of their understandings and readings in that direction would be super useful. So uh, we, also, I, we also do have an Alyosha on the server, so that's a half shout out. So, <laughs> so I'd, I like to, I'd like to mention that, uh, you know, one of the places this comes up is like uh, if you have a, uh, you know, like a game of life type uh, uh, thing where the uh, you have all the cells and the cells are all relating to each other and through their the the, the computation of the cells based on their uh, the local values around them they take over they 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 create a pattern but you can only see that pattern if you survey it from above right yes, so very this, good, very good. this surveying from above is a very fundamental operation that doesn't get talked about very often um, in, in, for instance, uh, chaos theory literature or whatever, that a lot of times these uh, complex dynamic patterns, you can only see them if you set them off at a distance so you can see the entire entire pattern. I, I'm also going to jump in because Jack brings up one of, the, one of the lines that really spoke to me directly, and I know I talk about my kid a lot, but the, the line from Ninjinsky from his diary. Yes, I was my father and I was my son. Um, I really like this concept of that as an understanding, almost the, the, the way that we are able to identify with both and able to be both maybe at different times or have a different distance from them. But uh, it speaks, speaks to me about my experience with my father and my son at the same time. So it's, it's interesting. Really like sense. Makes sense, Brooks. I would say that the fundamental film for this exploration, even if it's uh, sort of commercially successful, is uh, Back to the Future. Actually, being father and son at the same time, giving birth to you, being being the father of the father as the son to give birth to yourself, right? It's it's all very, but it's that's not the first sort of uh, artistic attempt to like display this. I mean, uh, what's his name, Harold Bloom, R.I.P. You know, he 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 discusses that in the Anxiety of Influence. And there's the the very very classic, uh, not to go back to Star Trek or old Twilight Zone. It's an old sci-fi trope of the guy who goes back in time to the moment life was first created, and oops, something was slightly off, and that's it because you were there, you adjusted things, and now you aren't born. Uh, those, those a lot of those moments are we are the cause of our father, we are the cause of our son. I think, uh, and we are our father and our son. It's. Uh, it's fantastic. Please, Jack, please jump in. I was going to say, too, I really like that Kemp brought up the genealogical element of looking for patterns and tracing those out. Because what I'm getting out of this, too, is that um, the schizo has a means of inscription and recording uh, themselves on the body without organs, right? And so, like, that allusion to Nijinsky is really essential here because that shows us someone writing in their diary as a as they say before that, right, being the letter, the pen, and the paper, 
uh, that they have been their father and they have been their son. That's a very freeing notion compared to um, uh, allowing the Oedipal to be inscribed further upon the body with our organs. Also, I wanted to say uh, thanks to Taylor because um, what I've decided now that I'm going to completely reframe my entire PhD thesis around doing a schizoanalytic reading of Back to the Future. Uh, <laughs> I think I think I'm gonna make I'm just gonna completely reorganize all of it from scratch and I'm gonna do that. Uh, <laughs> all right, well, you, just just give me uh, acknowledgement. You know, that's all. I yeah, I'll, I'll, put, I'll put your name on the acknowledgement page at the front. <laughs> I do have to make sure because it is in chat, but uh, we have to give a shout out to Futurama, which has my favorite version of this actually, which is the uh, Fry being literally his own grandfather. Right. Uh, right. Yes. Let's, quite literally. Uh, so that's gross. There's also uh, the, it's, it's, I think it's Zizek who talks about the, uh, the big bang is sort of this, uh, this miscalculation by God and sort of like existence is, 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 a uh, is sort of a miscalculation or it's just like this error in calculation. Right. So it's an addendum to like Leibniz's perfect worlds theory. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but I mean, Zizek's written like too much, so you know. Is, yeah. is that the one where he starts talking about it, like where he, where he says that video games are a model, like he uses video games as a model for how to understand reality? Like his kid, and, like pushes to the end of the map or something, and you can't go any further beyond it. Is that the thing you're? I think I've read that. I mean, I don't know. I, I figure Zizek just like reshuffles. So all the answer, the answer is yes, but he's repurposed it. So. He, the answer is both, the answer is yes and no at the same time. Yeah, because he's just, is that guy. Right. He's just a copy pasta guy, you know. <laughs> and I'm still one of those assholes who will buy everything he fucking puts out. It's the way it works. Um, yeah. Uh, who wants to read the next paragraph? I'm happy to actually because this this is I think this is something I alluded I talked about um, earlier. Ahead of it thing. is. It Go is. For it, please. Sure. The disjunctive synthesis of recording therefore leads us to the same result as the connective synthesis. It too is capable of two uses, the one imminent, the other transcendent. And here again, why does psychoanalysis reinforce the transcendent use that introduces exclusions and restrictions everywhere in the disjunctive network and that makes the unconscious swing over into Oedipus? And why is Oedipalization precisely that? It is because the exclusive relation introduced by Oedipus comes into play not only between the various disjunctions conceived as differentiations, but between the whole of the differentiations that it imposes and an undifferentiated that it presupposes. Oedipus informs us, if you don't follow the lines of differentiation, daddy, mommy, me, and the exclusive alternatives that delineate them, you will fall into the black night of the undifferentiated. It should be made clear that the exclusive disjunctions are not at all the same as the inclusive disjunctions. Neither God nor the parental designations play the same role in the two. In exclusive disjunctions, parental appellations no longer designate intensive states through which the subject passes on the body without organs. And in the unconscious, it remains an orphan. Yes, I was something. 
Rather, they designate global persons who do not exist prior to prohibitions that found them, and they differentiate among those, these global persons and in relation to the ego, so that the transgression of a prohibition becomes, correlatively, a confusion of persons, where the ego identifies with the global persons with the loss of differentiating rules or differentiating functions. This, for me, is probably like the really key bit um, of everything we've read so far, really. Uh, this, this is where we get really explicit, I think, about exactly how it is that at, at least mm-hmm. some of the ways that psychoanalysis goes wrong um, and the ways in which it um, traps and mutilates um, what, what, what they call an edible uh, desire. I... I did bold this and italicize this because that's the way it is in the text. Uh, They do not do that a lot throughout this book, so I figured it was important we make sure everyone reads that sentence as was intended, which was italicized and heavily emphasized. Um, Because I think it is, this is them being, they do it once in a while. Sometimes they're explicit, and this is one of those. Yeah, I agree. Uh, The the section here, go ahead. I was just going to say, for me, this was the first time. I, I know they do this quite a lot, where they end up rephrasing arguments throughout the text. But this actually drove home the lack argument really well for me, uh, specifically when they kind of oppose the idea of this, the undifferentiated that psychoanalysis opposes to the differentiated state of being. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of it just just rephrasing it in this way really helped me see. That that whole I think what they're driving at that there is no non-differentiated state of being, you know, and that the impre- this imposition of this kind of there's a primordial undifferentiated state that, that the subject has to return to is the very self-fulfilling prophecy that creates that whole experience of lack, um, and just that yeah here when they they I think we have to be careful and not, not not that any of us are doing it but that there's a way we can discuss the whole idea of inclusive disjunctions almost as if it is that kind of undifferentiated you know raw desiring production that that just kind of becomes this vague inaccessible field that a lot of psychoanalysis tends to use whereas i think what they're getting at is it's not it's not precisely inaccessible it is inscrutable and mysterious and you know non-rational perhaps but it's not that it is an impossible sort of like originary violence that we can never uh, uh, reach it's it's it has effects that we can observe and anyway, so that this section really helped me to understand that. Me too. And, and how I started reading this was that they're talking basically at psycho, psychoanalysts here, for sure. Uh, but they're talking about the the analysand and saying, uh, it, I called it last night, uh, it's almost psychic blackmailing, where uh, you present someone, here is where your problems have to be, or you simply will never get any help. And because of that, that sort of... It's just this awful double bind of, well, I guess I better do. Yeah, no, no, I have problems with my father. Please, I'm sure I can be fixed, kind of becomes the sort of panic response. I like that. Can I I jump in for a second? Please, please. So, um, Alyosha, I like what you said. I would would just um, maybe add an addendum to this question of the undifferentiated. Because for Simon Don... You know, when you look back at a, at a philosopher like Anaximander and he goes back to the Epiron, the, the unlimited, the undifferentiated, etc., um, it's not that it doesn't exist. It's that the being is, 
insofar as we consider it individual, is always in contact and communication with a pre-individual being that would be the apiron, the undifferentiated. And when we forget, when we extract the individual outside of that milieu, of that annex milieu that uh, sort of informs and allow and provides a potential for the uh, individual, when we forget that process of individuation and abstract the individual out of it, and we consider it as a substance, that's where we fall prey to a kind of uh, double bind. So we have to consider the individual in relation to this pre-individual milieu that informs it and that allows it to have metastability and to become. And and therefore, the individual doesn't, it's not that it doesn't exist, it's that psychoanalysis provides this double bind where it tries to separate and oppose the, the individual as a specific global person in the connective synthesis, in this uh, paralogism, uh, the first paralogism of the con- of the unconscious, against this undifferentiated that it would not be. Whereas, in fact, relation is the communication between the undifferentiated, the pre-individual, and the being. And if the being doesn't have that communication, if it doesn't draw upon the, if it doesn't draw upon charges of the pre-individual then it's actually a dead being. And uh, psychoanalysis wants us to be dead or alive exclusively rather than sort of in communication with this milieu that it precedes us, but also uh, becomes only distinguished after individuation occurs. So since we have a translator, I'm going to ask a pointed translator question. Uh, they use throughout almost everything when they talk about the molar to the molecular, they talk about that being the transition of differentiation. Is that the same differentiation they're using here? Uh, can you restate that question? I, I, I think I understand it, but I, I'm wondering about the, the term. Early sections of the text and later and in other pieces when they talk about molar and molecular. They talk about the molar being these sort of high-level uh, probabilities and you know the, the masses of people, but that molecular is about uh, differentiation. That's when the molecular kind of comes about. Uh, here, they say things, that they very much start using the differentiation uh, again as a term. And uh, I mean, th- this has very sort of useless tonality in English, but in French, they do use so many different words for these things. So I figured I'd ask, is there, uh, is there, is there a reason that they're using differentiation here? Because it talks about the undifferentiated mass, which would be the molar side of things, the undifferentiated. Am I wrong? In terms of differentiation, when Deleuze uses it, he means it, and for example, a difference of repetition, he means it in sense of uh, differentiation versus integration, and in that sense, it's mathematical, right? It's it's it, he harkens back to Leibniz, and he harkens back to this question of calculus and uh, and that sort of thing. On the other hand, um, this question of undifferentiation being the molar, I don't think that's true because the molar, as as you no, know... No, no, 
the molar right. includes undifferentiated and differentiated. The molar okay. is okay. The molar is like these large setups, but when whenever they talk about the molecular, at least early on, they talked about it and they used the term uh, uh, the mol the molecular. Sorry, the molecular. When they talk about the molecular, they say things like uh, it appears through differentiation. That, see, that makes sense to me, and it's. But the the problem is, this would be an exclu- This would be a great example of an inclusive disjunction because the molar mm. two is differentiated in the sense in which it follows the law of the Avogadro's number for for a particular multiplicity or for or, or for a particular oh. multiple, right? So. When we think of uh, micropolitics, for example, which will really uh, become more of a, a term of art in uh, A Thousand Plateaus and Machine Conscious, we are talking about the law of social multiples. And there we can distinguish a micropolitics from a micropolitics based on what constitutes a mole in the specific chemistry sense of what is the Avogadro's number? What is it that 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 it takes to? What's the exponential uh, rate that causes a molecular mass to accumulate to agglomerate into a mole? Right. So that's where I don't think necessarily that the molar is purely undifferentiated. It also has its own differentiation. It all depends. Okay. Okay. No, yes. No, no. It's, it, thank you. That really helps because it's, again, uh, it, I just happen to have someone here who I can ask about these very specific terms. So I'm going to abuse the ability. Um, oh, that's Al- great. Alyosha, uh, you had a, a comment before we moved on to the next paragraph. Yeah, I just wanted to follow up with uh, Taylor's clarification, and, and that was very helpful. I wonder if we could maybe, I'm, I'm just looking at the second half of the sentence we've highlighted when they say, um, rather they designate global persons who did not exist prior to the prohibitions that found them and the differentiate among these global persons and in relation to the ego. That that I, I, I see of an element of sort of what you were speaking about in terms of the, the pre-individual and, and, you know, trying to insert that into the conversation am i right or wrong in understanding when they say uh that psychoanalysis designate global persons who do not exist prior to the prohibitions that this is sort of a critique of you know i guess what the losing guitarist project would be which is to say that you know there's no role for the familiar or anything beyond the familial the desiring production and the effects that that uh produces from the socius let's say onto the the pre-individual and instead the when they say it doesn't exist prior, does, is that to mean like I, I'm lacking in my psychoanalytic theory here? But that for sort of traditional psychoanalysis, this is like you know the the individual comes into being, and then there's like a mirror stage, and then they start to understand the things around them, and you know things happen, but these these individuals kind of just appear as part of a symbolic order, rather than having I don't know a, a, another kind of relationship with them. Does that make sense? I know it's a bit of a I think I think I think everything you said makes perfect sense. I would say the double bind of psychoanalysis is not just ignoring the pre-individual because once the individual appears, it's always already in contact, in constant communication, in potential sort of metastable equilibrium with the pre-individual until it's dead. And so the psycho psychoanalysis 
ignores the pre-individual that's charging it. It's it, the milieu that provides us with energy, so to speak. That's the annex milieu. That's not the whole of the pre-individual, but that's part of it. But it also ignores the other side. That's the other, that's the double pincer. It ignores the trans-individual, which is not just an inter-individual relation. It's not, that's not just, uh, um, it's not just us as egos relating with other egos. It's the, it's what, Simon Dole called the spiritual domain. It's the ethical domain that transcends the individual relation, and is it, so. So you have on the sort of, you could say on the in, uh, on an interior and inferior side, in terms of like uh, you could say size or exponents. You have the pre-individual, but you also have the trans-individual, which is truly. For Simodon, the collective, properly speaking, and it, it and it 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 transcends um, any sort of mere ego to ego relation, and you can see this. I think it's it may be in the third sex subsection, or maybe in the fifth, where they quote Nietzsche and saying, "I am all the names in history," and and they talk about this tracing of the circle, the arc of the circle of the different names, the. The pretender who pretended to be the Dauphin. Um, so this is uh, this is where psychoanalysis fucks us over. They 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 screw us over into an ego that is an individual that is a corpuscle in the in the antiquated sense of physics, where we are neither wave or particle, neither the complementarity of the two, but we are sort of stuck. Uh, abstracted out of the pre and trans individual state, we are lacking all relation, all potential, and we are merely uh, father, mother, me. We are merely we we are Oedipus. Does that make sense? Yes. Well, to me, it does. Yes. No. It. it I think it really helps. Um, man, it's a, it's a lot to process. I'm, but in the interest of time, I am going to make sure that we start moving on. This would be worthwhile. Uh, whoever's helping run the review session tomorrow, every Tuesday, we have a review session over what was discussed today. Make sure that we bring this up and have a, a really extended, long discussion around this because it's a really difficult point. Um, and it's a lot to read through. I'm going to jump into the next paragraph though. Uh, but we should stress the fact that Oedipus creates both the differentiations that it orders and the undifferentiated with which it threatens us. With the same movement, the Oedipus complex inserts desire into triangulation and prohibits desire from satisfying itself with the terms of the triangulation. It forces desire to take as its object the differentiated parental persons and, brandishing the threats of the undifferentiated, prohibits the correlative ego from satisfying its desires with these persons in the name of the same requirements of differentiation. But it is this undifferentiated that Oedipus creates as the reverse of the differentiations that it creates. Oedipus says to us, either you will internalize the differential functions that rule over the exclusive disjunctions and thereby resolve Oedipus, or you will fall into the neurotic night of imaginary identifications. Either you will follow the lines of the triangle, lines that structure and differentiate the three terms, or you will always bring one term into play as if it were one too many in relation to the other two, and you will reproduce in every sense the dual relations of identification and the undifferentiated. 
there is Oedipus on either side. And everybody knows what psychoanalysis means by resolving Oedipus, internalizing it so as to better rediscover it on the outside, in social authority, where it will be made to where it will be made to proliferate and be passed on to the children. The child becomes a man only by resolving the Oedipus complex, whose resolution introduces introduces him into society where he finds, within the figure of authority, the obligation to relive it, this time with no way out. Nor is it by any means certain that, between the impossible return to that which precedes the stage of culture and the growing malaise that this stage provokes, a point of equilibrium can be found. Oedipus is like the labyrinth. You only get out by re-entering it, or by making someone else enter it. Oedipus's either problem or solution is the two ends of a ligature that cuts off all desiring production. The screws are tightened. Nothing relating to production can make its way through any longer, except as a far distant murmur. The unconscious has been crushed, triangulated, and confronted with a choice that is not its own. With all of the exits now blocked, there is no longer any possible use for the inclusive, non-restrictive disjunctions. Parents have been found for the orphan unconscious. The, the double bind, uh, creating both the differentiations that it orders and the undifferentiated with which it threatens us. Does anyone want to dive into this concept? Because this is the same stuff I was talking about before, the uh, psychic blackmailing. I called it yesterday the purgatory of psychoanalysis, being stuck in that place of undifferentiation inside of the masses that can't be fixed. So, um, you know, to kind of like go, go see the same thing in a different subject, <clears throat> Like, for instance, there's a systems theory, and uh, there's been a 60-year history of people developing concepts of what uh, systems are. But uh, the problem with systems theory in general is that they kind of assume that the system is on an undifferentiated background and that the, and that the, the actual environment in which it is does not matter. And so, and so this, 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 there's a kind of blind spot in our culture that, that causes us to look at the system and be fascinated with that, but just forget about the background it's on. And this, this is where Bataille comes in, where Bataille is saying uh, there's not just the restricted economy, but there's a, the uh, general economy as well. The, the environment is there. It has its structure, and that structure is kind of the inverse of the structure of the system, and that we have to take that into account in order to understand how the niche how the system operates in its niche. And so this thing, so like the Oedipal complex is like a system and by a kind of exclusive focus on that system, we kind of forget about all of the other things that are in the background that are actually completely different from that system. Well, I like the the comment here, uh, Oedipus is like the labyrinth. You only get out by re-entering it or by making someone else enter it. Uh, There's a, there's a, bit of a condemnation feeling there of um, those who have children a little bit before their time and make someone else enter it and therefore become the father themselves sort of by default and they get a free break uh, almost. Maybe I'm reading that too lightly, but I found it kind of humorous. I, for me, this, this, this is a double bind they're talking about, right? Um, once you identify the Oedipus complex in this way, um, you know, where everyone, you know, enters into this complex. Um, there's only two ways, there's only two ways out, neither of which are actually ways out, right? There's either resolution, in which case you simply internalize the Oedipus complex and reproduce it, 
um, or, you, or the, I think they call it like fixation, Freud called it the fixation, mm-hmm. um, in which case you never truly resolve Oedipus, in which case you nevertheless pass it on, but in, a, you know, in Freud's, what Freud would see as a less, uh, you know, less healthy, less positive way. Um, and that, again, that's another double bind that psychoanalysis places the subject within. You know, you either resolve Oedipus or you fixate on it, but you, you've got to choose, right? <laughs> um, there's no way out of it. And another another thing that's uh, kind of interesting is that uh, you know there's a difference between uh, labyrinths and mazes, and the, the difference is that a labyrinth has one path from the outside to the inside. There's a routinization in the in the labyrinth that isn't there in the maze. Well, and 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 labyrinths tend to also imply secondary puzzles in order to make your way through. A maze is simply walking and making your way through very simply, whereas a labyrinth implies that there's a shitload of stuff to do in order to find that path. And fighting minotaurs being one of the more obvious things, but it's it's not just simply a maze. And that I, that that battle and that that thing that you're struggling with when you're talking about uh, getting through Oedipus and making your way out the other side, the double bind. And uh, we'll just jump right into the next uh, paragraph here. Does anyone want? Want to read this or should I just jump in? Double bind is the term used by Gregory Bateson to describe the simultaneous transmission of two kinds of messages, one of which contradicts the other. As for example, the father who says to his son, go ahead, criticize me, but strongly hints to that all effects of criticism, at least a certain type of each of criticism, will be very unwelcome. Bateson sees in this phenomena a particularly schizophrenic situation, which he interprets as contrary from the viewpoint of Russell's theory of types. It seems to us that the double bind, the double impasse, is, a co- is a, instead a common situation, edipalizing par excellence. And although it, it, it would require formalization, the other type of nonsense spoken of by Russell is brought by mind of the double bind situation. An alternative of an exclusive disjunction is defined in terms of a principle, which however constitutes its two terms and underlying goals, and where the principle itself enters the alternate universe. Bracket, a completely different cause from that what happens in the disjunction is inclusive, close bracket. Here we have the second paralogism of psychoanalysis, in short, the double bind, is none other than the whole of Oedipus. It is in this sense that Oedipus should be presented as a series, or an oscillation between two poles, the neurotic identification and the impact and the internalization that is said to be normative. On the other side, on either side is Oedipus, the double impasse, and if a schizo is produced here as an entity, this occurs for a simple reason, that there is no other means of escaping this double path, where normality is no less blocked than neuroses, and where a solution offers no way out than does the problem. Hence, the schizos would roll to the body without organs. And there's a lot to go through uh, in this uh, paragraph. We'll try to burst through it because we have uh, 40 minutes left, which isn't too bad. We're doing okay. Uh, we got to try to keep it under two hours. YouTube won't let us post anything that's over that. Um, I wanted to quickly just go into double bind because uh, my favorite. Uh, just... I mean, sorry, uh, sorry. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think there's a really, if, if you want a more concrete example, like a less abstract example, there's an example in Eugene Hall and Sky to Antiochus, where he, they connect the double bind to the prohibition of incest. It's uh, essentially what, what, they, what he says is that it's essentially at the, at the point where 
the law is 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 that the law is basically prohibits fucking your mother that your desire is created to fuck your mother and they say earlier as they they've said a, a couple of times here it's the the very moment of the denial of desire is that creates the desire itself they've said that throughout the text yeah. it's like it almost creates it's it's almost creating a lack <laughs> it does i mean my understanding is that that's specifically what it does um what they, they, they say that the moment the prohibition is introduced the subject says oh so that's what i wanted i wanted to fuck my mum or whatever you know that, that's the whole point of it is that it introduces lack into the yes. desire precisely through prohibition of this of 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 what of this more primal but undifferentiated desire of an, an edible desire uh, beneath or behind it um and that, that's that's another one of the apologisms i think they they, they they identify with it um it's precisely that misrecognition where you for, for, for a psychoanalyst what happens is the mistake is to derive the nature of what is prohibited from the prohibition itself right that's a mistake um and it's in the same way i think that you know how we talk about the um the emergence of subjectivity as this after effect where the subject says um it's me and so it's mine um it's the same thing i think the same sort of process happens here it's a kind of constitutive misrecognition where that prohibition creates the idea that oh well that's what i wanted all along apparently um but it wasn't right uh, <laughs> it gets misrepresented in that way but it can't not get represented in that way through oedipus does that make sense i think i hope it makes sense no 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 it, it completely does to me it's a, one of the tough parts about hosting this and also parsing through what everyone says is that sometimes i just need to take a second and just think and go oh because uh, the, this whole this whole section is, uh, I mean, basically steering us down their direct uh, critiques of Oedipus and how it works in relation to how they view schizoanalysis and how they view kind of where the schizo sits, uh, sort of as a a symbol of this this sort of deep repression and this double bind. And every time that someone is able to give me another example of how these double binds work, where they where they play into the psychoanalysis and psychology of it all, it helps me understand even more uh, sort of uh, the the emancipatory power of the schizo. Uh, which they say pretty cleanly here, uh, actually. Yeah, I, I think one of the things I realized when I was reading through this <clears throat> this uh, chapter again um, a few days ago was it, it can come across as really complex, and it is a complex book, right? But actually, when you pare it down, what the, the criticisms that they're making of um, of, of the Oedipus complex of psychoanalysis in a way they're the kinds of criticisms that a lot of people completely non-academic non, non-versed in psychoanalysis make of it as well right like I'm not going to go ahead get ahead of ourselves here but there's a bit where we talk about how um, one similar chain gets sort of pulled out of it and used as the only thing that matters right but determines the, all the other symbols um like in in common language, like what we mean is like oh, so it basically sees like the symbol of the father or the phallus, whatever, um, everywhere. Um, like at base, the kind of critiques that Deleuze and Guattari make, in a way, are not that unorthodox or um, uh, strange to us. I don't think it's just that they're they're much more theoretically rigorous about saying 
how analytical desire actually works and then really hammering out exactly where the details of exactly where psychoanalysis goes wrong so actually there's this i think there's a kind of commonsensical element to you know like they'll call it like the five pologisms of psychoanalysis but i i think there's they're not as complex a lot of the time as they 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 come across as hmm. i would i would always suggest that the, the paralogisms were already uh, laid out in logic of sense so they're taken up and talked about in uh, a new context here you know so uh, I think that that's where Guattari and Deleuze actually really synthesize so I just, I just like to mention about Russell so uh, you know Russell uh, was uh, in communication with Frege and uh, Frege was writing the uh, his arithmetic and uh, book on arithmetic, and uh, Russell found an error in it, and so he wrote to Frege telling him about the error, and Frege couldn't come up with a solution to that, and wrote an appendix that tried to explain what uh, what the ramifications of that error was, and um, and so then Russell came up with uh, the uh, the uh, theory of logical types to um, to try to solve the problem of the air, and uh, and so the air comes down to a set being a member of itself, um, and so and so the the set theory. Um, if you look at set theory now, the, the 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 ultimate set is called a universe rather than a set, and that's in order to. Uh, avoid this problem of a set being a member of itself, and so that's the contradiction. With if you have a membership operation, then something, and if something is a set, um, and then it becomes a member of itself, suddenly you don't know whether it's on top or on the bottom. It's a, it, it it that's where the, the the this this double bind paradox comes from, and so all of Bateson's work is trying to apply. Um, uh, Russell's theory of types to uh, to different kinds of problems in society here to understand schizophrenia. Yeah, I would just piggyback on Kent here that you can't underestimate how much Bateson is lifting for the whole of capitalism and schizophrenia. Both books, not just here in Antiedipus, but also in A Thousand Plateaus with the uh, definition of pla- of plateau itself. And um, if 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 we ignore Bateson's contribution, we, we do so at our peril. Another point is that what happened was uh, Gödel uh, did his incompleteness theorem and basically showed that it's impossible to, you know, Basically, what Russell was trying to do was create a whole bunch of partitions, either classes or types in a kind of grid to prevent these contradictions from occurring. And Gödel kind of proved that that's impossible to uh, completely isolate these things that call, cause paradoxes. And, and so what happened in, in uh, analytic philosophy was that they, they basically threw out higher logical type theory and went to what they call simple type theory because they just accepted that it was impossible to solve the problems and get rid of the paradox. If I could expand on that too, the way I read the sentence, it is in this sense that Oedipus should be presented as a series or an oscillation between two poles. The neurotic identification 
and the internalization of this to be normative. I don't quite see that as them saying prohibition is producing desire. Um, I, I see them as saying allowing yourself to become a neurotic and therefore accept yourself as problematic, right? So you allow yourself to be problematized. When you do that, you also have to internalize the normalization of that problematic, which is the, it it's, doesn't sound to me like it's a, a production prohibition. It sounds to me like it, it's an acceptance of going past the prohibition itself. Yeah, I think you're right. And to clarify, one of, one of the things they talk about in uh, in the third chapter, in you know, when we turn to sort of the historical, you know, political economy and things like that, there's a there's a there's a conceptual distinction. And I can't remember exact terminology, but it'd be would be really helpful if they'd brought it up earlier. Actually, um, so what happens, I think, through the prohibition is that it it creates a, rep- a representation of desire. Um, right, but that's separate from desire itself. Um, so the representation of desire becomes edible, right? Which is why the subject says, "Oh, so that's what I desired." But they aren't claiming that necessarily. That I don't think that that uh, desire really corresponds in that way. Um, it's kind of that constitutive me- misrecognition that's important for them, I think. I think that's well said. That's that's good to bring up this question of the displacement of the representation of desire and the representative of desire, etc. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't remember the exact <laughs> the exact name for it. But I, I found it helpful when I was reading the chapter. Um, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be it is. Yeah. All right, and I'm gonna push us on to the next uh, section here. If uh, let's see, Jack, do you want to give the next paragraph a read? It seems that Freud himself was acutely aware of Oedipus's inseparability from a double impasse into which he was precipitating the unconsciousness. Thus, in the 1936 letter to Romain Roland, Freud writes, quote, Everything unfolds as if the essential were to go beyond the father, as if going beyond the father were always forgiven, for, excuse me, forbidden, uh, end quote. This becomes even more clear when Freud elaborates the entire historical mythical series. At one end, the Oedipal bond is established by the murderous identification. At the other end, it is reinforced by the restoration and internalization of parental authority, the revival of the old state of things at a new level. Between the two, there is latency, the celebrated latency, which is without doubt the greatest psychoanalytic mystification. The society of, quote, brothers, unquote, who forbid themselves the fruits of the crime and spend all the time necessary for internalizing. But we are warned the society of brothers is very dejected, unstable, and dangerous. It must prepare the way for the rediscovery of an equivalent to parental authority. It must cause us to pass over to the other pole. In accordance with the suggestion of Freud's, American society, the industrial society, with anonymous management and vanishing personal power, etc., is presented to us as a resurgence of the, quote, society without the father, end quote. Not surprisingly, the industrial society is burdened with the search for original modes for the restoration of the equivalent. For example, the astonishing discovery by Mr. Lick that the British royal family, after all, is not such a bad thing. 
I I love this entire section as well. And we, again, we start getting into some of their very, very specific points and critiques uh, a lot really than they have been in the past. Uh, a lot less poetic, still, I think, kind of beautiful writing personally. But um, when we talk about that first line, it's uh, the section I spent some time on last night sort of rambling about is everything unfolds as if the essential were to go beyond the father, as if going beyond the father were always forbidden. Uh, there's again, we get into that double bind of the nature of all of this. It's really uh I, I find a lot of this great. Any any comments before we jump on to the next one? Because this is a fairly clear uh, grouping of this. Um, the one thing I want to make sure we talk about uh, before we move on is the way they're using the Society of Brothers. Uh, we went into a little bit of a rabbit hole to try to see if there was any other translation here or anything else. I uh, have to ask since we have Taylor here. Yeah, I'd, so, I'd love to jump in. Please. I would, I would say that quote you you, you uh, brought up, the everything unfolds. Uh, yes. That that seems interestingly enough to be an autobiographical statement. If we consider all of the different male analysts that Freud uh, mentored and then broke apart from. Starting with Jung, but then you have many others. Um, so that to me seems like this question of his own recognition of him being the father, the papa of uh, psychoanalysis. I'll leave that aside because that's, you know, more of a historical thing. But this question of the, the society of brothers, no, I, it's actually, it, it actually is uh, a literal translation and it comes back and 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 I think that that's the uh, footnote that they point to is totem and taboo and this question of this this myth of the sort of the band of brothers who brave the 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 murderous deed the the criminal deed of killing the father because the father is hoarding the uh, the supreme capital the supreme object of desire, which is the women. He's so that's that's kind of how we we landed on it. That their reference is basically the idea that um, because they put brothers there in quotes, we're talking about this idea that uh, members of any large group, but we'll say society here, the the members are brothers in the sense that they all have gone through specifically that they are this uh, edipalized unit, each one of them, and specifically it says we are warned the society of brothers, uh, sort of. I, I guess you could also substitute in here the hoi polloi, uh, which is a word I love. Uh, I would also take it in the sense in which Greek democracy granted citizenship only to male landowners who mm. were of a certain class. So it's yes, not I think it's authoritarian. No, no, no. It's it's not that. It's it's but it's the idea of the the men in charge, the people in charge, uh, are are naturally the humans are dejected, unstable, and dangerous, and it must prepare a way for the rediscovery of an equivalent to parental authority. Uh, they basically the idea that we need Oedipus at a societal level because we absolutely need to have this parental authority in order to run yes. these these brutes. Yes, to run the society. Very good. I I love that because that 
goes into Freud's theory of sublimation and civilization and its discontents. And it and it well, and, and this this section here we found to be just depressing to read that the in accordance with Freud's American society uh, because again it's the timing and if you go back over the last fifty years right, right. spot on uh, American society with anonymous management and vanishing personal power which I think is a very easy way to describe the way that uh, government was seen during the sixties and seventies. Uh, it was very much a managerial class. This is true of the UK as well. Very, and, very true. And Reagan brought in that first father uh, that we could have. And I mean, fuck, that's how they played him up. Absolutely well, throughout the whole whole thing. Yeah, I mean, if Nixon is the father that the Band of Brothers, you know, slaughtered, but also forgave, you know, yeah, it, it makes sense. And and a society under Carter, as much as I like Carter as a person, absolutely is a society without a father. The dude did not play the role of dad to America in the same way that Reagan did, or uh, I would say now, uh, to steal from Craig in chat, who's spot on, they're talking about Trump here without knowing Trump's around. That's true. But also, uh, this is 72, so this is also before uh, Nixon's resignation. So I should add that as a caveat. It is therefore understood that we leave one pole of Oedipus only to pass on to the other. No way of getting out. Neurosis or normality. The Society of Brothers rediscovers nothing of production and desiring machines. On the contrary, it spreads the veil of latency. As to those who refuse to be analyzed in one form or another, at one end or the other in the treatment, the psychoanalyst is there to call the asylum or the police for help. The police on our side never did psychoanalysis better display its taste for supporting the movement of social oppression and for participating in it with enthusiasm. Let it not be thought that we are alluding to the folkloric aspects of psychoanalysis. The fact that there are some around Lacan who are developing another conception of psychoanalysis does not mean that we should take no notice of the dominant tone in the most respected associations. Consider Dr. Mandel and the Dr. Stefan, the state of fury that is theirs, and their literally police-like appeal at the thought that someone might claim to escape the Oedipal dragnet. And it's just is one of those things that becomes all the more dangerous the less people live in it. Then the cops are there to replace the high priests. The first profound example of analysis of double bind in this sense can be found in Marx's On the Jewish Question between the family and the state, the Oedipus of familial authority, and the Oedipus of social authority. And it is worth uh, just taking a moment because I hadn't read uh, Marx's On the Jewish Question, which... Uh, as I made the joke last night, sounds problematic, uh, but it, it actually really isn't. Uh, Marx's uh, writings on the Jewish question basically is an answer to the classic liberal question of whether or not religion and political freedoms uh, can be a thing. And in on the Jewish question, it's actually some of Marxist early, Marx's earliest writings uh, that really talks about, uh, to quote uh, Stanford's summary of it, um, liberal rights and ideas of justice are premised on the idea that each of us needs protection from other human beings who are a threat to our liberty and security. Therefore, liberal rights are rights of separation designed to protect us from perceived threats. What this view overlooks is a possibility, for Marx, a fact, that real freedom is to be found positively in our relations with other people. It is to be found in human community, not in isolation. Uh, that the, the power of us together is better than the power of us apart, or however you want to put it into a Saturday morning cartoon mentality. 
but it's really actually worth reading the section. And I think, again, speaks to that earlier concept of the Society of Brothers, uh, who we are warned against. Uh, but the reality is that man is actually at its best when we're working together and in communities. This is one of the, the ways in which you can use this analysis to think about um, at least, you know, some, some of the recent political uh, developments. And particularly, you know, Craig talked about <clears throat> Trump. Um, but I think Trump Trump is adaptized in two ways, not just one. He's adaptized in the way that Craig Craig says, of course. But in that sense, he's a product of an Oedipalized society, precisely insofar as it's searching for a replacement of that lost, that lost yeah. bit of father figure, right? Um, and in that case, you can probably use this. You can use this for a basis, and it has been done before. Like none of what I'm saying is original. Um, to to think about the role of sort of strongman um, leaders, right? Um, about the role of dictators or charismatic populist um, in a negative way, uh, leaders in that is that it is society's attempt perhaps to to reinstate that father, right? To to re, to return again the source of that social authority and to make it visible again, um, even though it can never really be done in that way. I don't think. Hmm. All right, I'm going to go ahead and. Not- Next uh, paragraph, and we'll try to get through 15 minutes. We've got a bunch to get through, so let's try to do it. Um, Oedipus is completely useless, except for tying off the unconscious on both sides. We shall see in what sense Oedipus is strictly undecidable, indecidable, as the mathematicians would put it. We are extremely tired of those stories where one is said to be in good health because of Oedipus, sick from Oedipus, and suffering from various illnesses under the influence of Oedipus. It sometimes happens that an analyst becomes fed up with this myth that is the bed and board of psychoanalysis and goes back to the sources. Freud never managed to escape the world of the father or of guilt. While offering the possibility of constructing a logic of the relation to the father, he was the first to open the way for a release from the father's hold on man. The possibility of living beyond the father's law, beyond all law, is perhaps the most essential possibility brought forth by Freudian psychoanalysis. But paradoxically, and perhaps because of Freud, everything leads us to conclude that this release made possible by psychoanalysis, will be achieved, is already being achieved outside. Now, the comment here is what I wrote in the doc. It's, it's great shit. <laughs> That's- it, it sounds like sounds like Watery. It sounds like him saying uh, one of the principles of schizoanalysis is that one cannot treat a patient from seated behind a couch. That, yep. that And this is why, in uh, I think in section two of chapter two, they bring up Grodick and they talk, uh, I mean, they, if you even like glance at his, you know, uh, and, and what he was trying to do um, where he, there was a kind of anecdotal description that if a patient came to him looking for analysis, he would massage them. If a patient looked for massage, he would analyze them. So like, this is how I kind of think of Guattari. He's, he's trying to, um, move beyond merely the talking cure that the talking cure has to be only one of the tools in the toolbox of the analyst where uh, you know that 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 the the analysis and the patient needs 
more than just signifiers, which are just absolutely. It's just bullshit. It's just it's just more. It's just ping pong balls off the wall. That one needs to take them out into nature, into you know, et cetera, et cetera. You you, you guys have read. yes, I, and I and I think that's a great summary of that paragraph. Uh, I'm going to continue. We cannot, however, share either this pessimism or this optimism, for there is much optimism in thinking psychoanalysis makes possible a veritable solution to Oedipus. Oedipus is like God. The father is like God. The problem is not resolved until we do away with both the problem and the solution. It is not the purpose of schizoanalysis to really resolve Oedipus. It does not intend to resolve it better than Oedipal psychoanalysis does. Its aim is to de-Oedipalize the unconscious in order to reach the real problems. Schizoanalysis proposes to reach those regions of the orphan unconscious, indeed beyond all law, where the problem of Oedipus can no longer even be raised. By the same token, we do not share the pessimism that consists in thinking that this change, this release can be achieved only outside psychoanalysis. We believe, on the contrary, in the possibility of an internal reversal that would make the analytic machine into an indispensable part of the revolutionary machinery. What is more, the objective conditions for such a practice appear to be already present. Who would like to read the next paragraph? Uh, we should just mention from the paragraph that we just read. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, specifically about uh, what we're talking about, about from the chapter in, in, in A Thousand Plateaus, there's a great line uh, specifically about bodies without organs, right? They say where psychoanalysis asks us to uh, uh, stop where we haven't found ourselves yet. Um, schizoanalysis goes and says, no, let's keep going. We haven't found our body without organs yet. I mean, basically what they're saying is they want to push it to the limit. And then coming back to pessimism, right? This is again, like sort of the loses aff- affirmation. If, if, if any of these guys have read like difference in repetition, you know, a delusion critiques, a very strange kind of critique, a delusion critiques, like just taking the author behind the back and creating something completely new out of it. Yeah, I, w- I would just add that um, this is a refrain that will continue throughout the book of connecting the analytic machine to the revolutionary machine. And this to me is, uh, I feel like the losing Guattari's corrective to what happened in May 68 and its failure and it's not constituting an event in their eyes. And so what needed to happen was that, that the analytic machine and the revolutionary machine didn't enter into interaction. They, they didn't communicate, and I think that that's what—that's the corrective set here, and we'll see this throughout the book. I'll read um, the next paragraph. I know we have to keep going, so yeah, we got to check through. We got—we got not much time, so go for it. Everything takes place as if Oedipus of itself had two poles: one pole characterized by imaginary figures that lend themselves to a process of vindication, and a second pole characterized by symbolic functions that lend themselves to a process of differentiation. But in any case, we are Oedipalized. If we don't have Oedipus as a crisis, we have it as a structure. Then the crisis play passed on to others, and the whole movie starts all over again. Such is the Oedipal disjunction, the swing of the pendulum, the exclusive inverse reasoning. That is why when we are invited to go beyond a simplistic conception of Oedipus based on parental images in order to find symbolic functions from the structure is in vain that the traditional daddy-mommy are replaced by our mother function, a father function. We don't quite see what there is to gain by this, except for the founding of the universality of Oedipus beyond the variability of images. 
diffusing of desire even more strongly to law and prohibitions. And the pushing of the process of edipalization of the unconscious to its limits. Here, Oedipus encounters its two extremes, its minimum and its maximum, depending on whether it is regarded as tending towards an undifferentiated value of its variable images or toward the force of differentiation of, differentiation of its symbolic functions. Quote, when one draws nearer to the material imagination, the differential function diminishes. One tends toward equivalences. When one draws nearer to the formative elements, the differential function increases. One tends toward distinctive balances. balances. End quote. It will hardly come as a surprise to learn that Oedipus as a structure is the Christian trinity, whereas Oedipus as a crisis, familiar trinity, insufficiently structured by faith, always the two poles in inverse proportion, Oedipus forever. There's actually a lot for us to go over in this chapter. Um, I'm actually going to request that we save that for our review tomorrow. The big thing uh, underlying this um, that I want to just steal from Varun, who had the quote last night. Uh, Oedipus was always there. Historical conditions just allowed for its discovery is, I think, a really nice and succinct way to talk about uh, this sort of paragraph and what it's saying about the conception and the order of Oedipus inside of it. Anyone else have any quick thoughts? Uh, I'll go ahead and jump into the next uh, section. Uh, How many interpretations of Lacanianism... I do not like that translation at all. (laughs) I'm going to say Lacan's thought. Overtly or secretly pious, as the case may be, have in this manner invoked a structural Oedipus to create and shut the double impasse, to lead us back to the question of the father, to Oedipalize even the schizo, and to show that a gap in the symbolic would bring us back to the imaginary, and inversely, that imaginary drivel or confusions would lead us to the structure. As a famous predecessor said to these creatures, you've already made this into an old refrain. As for us, that is why we were unable to posit it posit any difference in nature, any borderline, any limit at all between the imaginary and the symbolic, or between Oedipus as crisis and Oedipus as structure, or between the problem and its solution. It is solely a question of a correlative double impasse, the swing of the pendulum responsible for sweeping away the entire unconscious, and that continuously carries us from one pole to the other, a double pincher action that crushes the unconscious caught in its exclusive disjunction. Two paragraphs. I'm just going to keep going. Unless someone has something, feel free to start typing in chat all we'll just have god, god is a lobster that's all we already see this here yes god is a lobster and uh, jordan peterson apparently knew that i guess um the true difference in nature is not between the symbolic and the imaginary but between the real machinic element which constitutes desiring production and the structural whole of the imaginary and the symbolic which merely forms a myth in its variance the difference is not between two uses of oedipus but between the inedipal use of the inclusive, non-restrictive disjunctions and the edipal use of the exclusive disjunctions. Whether this last use borrows from the paths of the imaginary or the values of the symbolic, it would also be necessary to heed Lacan's word of caution concerning the Freudian myth of Oedipus, which, quote, has no way of holding its own indefinitely in the forms of society where the tragic sense is increasingly lost. A myth cannot sustain itself when it supports no ritual, and psychoanalysis is not the Oedipal ritual. Even if we go back 
from the images to the structure, from imaginary figures to symbolic functions, from the father to the law, from the mother to the great other. In truth, the question merely retreats, as if we try to envisage the time put into this retreat. The Khan goes on to say, the sole foundation for the society of brothers, for fraternity, is segregation. What does he mean here? It's because no one knows what the con means by almost anything. But I actually have a interesting passage. Uh, we'll go ahead and copy and paste it into. Uh, there it is. Uh, the root of segregation. Lacanian thought uh, found a wonderful writing from Lacanian Review on the root of segregation. If uh, anyone wants to dive in, uh, and then I'm going to read the final paragraph, and we will have our sort of closing thoughts. Uh, in any case, it was inopportune to tighten the nuts and bolts where Lacan had just loosened them, or to oedipalize the schizo, where, on the contrary, he had just schizophrenized even neurosis, injecting a schizophrenic flow capable of subverting the field of psychoanalysis. The object, small o, erupts at the heart of the structural equilibrium in the manner of an infernal machine, the desiring machine. Then a second generation of disciples of Lacan supervenes, less and less sensitive to the false problems of Oedipus. But if the first disciples were tempted to reclose the Oedipus yoke, didn't they do so to the extent that Lacan seemed to maintain a kind of projection of the signifying chains onto a despotic signifier, lacking unto itself and reintroducing lack into the series of desire on which it imposed an exclusive use? Was it possible to denounce Oedipus as myth and nevertheless maintain that the castration complex itself was not a myth, but in fact something real? Wasn't this tantamount to taking up the cry of Aristotle? We really must come to a halt in the face of this Freudian nanke, this rock. As we close out, uh, I want to just, uh, is there any final questions over this little section? I know we're going to be doing a large review tomorrow, and it's probably going to be fairly dense. But is there any last comments, any last thoughts before we give Taylor? I'm going to give you last words because you're the wonderful guest of the day. And also because you didn't care for Kingdom Hearts 3, I also did not. That that we share. So no that one has share. no one has any uh, any final things to ask or comment. Not my fault. Kingdom Hearts three sucks. Sorry, Jack. No, I was just saying that if for scrubs like myself, I said this in the chat, who haven't read uh, a thousand plateaus and and kind of retroactively reread stuff from Anti Oedipus in that. I know we've talked a lot about later commentary by Deleuze and Guattari in this text and in other texts about the body without organs and schizoanalysis and the liberatory potentials of these things. But I definitely think a lot of the confusion for you know neophytes like myself at the beginning had to do with the way they discussed the body without organs and the schizo and and it very much feeling almost like a not fatalistic but it's a it's a pre-edible stage and they're talking about all the ways that these these processes get closed down the way the body without organs miraculates and moves things around mm. like capital they always use the analogy of capital right, right. which you know you tend to see in a negative light uh if you're reading this with any sense so i really like that we're finally getting to this chapter where they seem to be switching tacks and we're really seeing for the first time the potentials, the, how we can look at the liberatory potential of these schizo, you know, schizoanalysis and the body without organs, not simply as a corollary to capital, but as something else. Um, and that that's just the impression I'm getting from this chapter. Well, I'll try my, my closing remarks to respond to Alyosha, um, if you guys don't mind. Please, go for it. So I would say very quickly that um, 
this question of the body of the organs, it does slightly shift from a thousand blood or from antiedibus to a thousand blood types. But instead of discussing that, what I would like to discuss is instead how we can find the notion of body without organs actually earlier in, in Simondon's thought. And what I would say is um, Simondon tries to uh, announce a new type of knowledge. Knowledge. He calls it transduction, and he distinguishes it from deduction and induction. I won't go into all that, but what I will say is he relates it to information. And what he says is that what we need to concern ourselves is not the quantity of information, which is what uh, Shannon and Weaver uh, associate with in information theory, nor the quality of information, which is what Norbert Wiener is interested in with cybernetics, but instead the intensity of information. And it's the intensity of information that is, in fact, the most, um, how should I say, the most um, indicative of, of individuation and the regimes of individuation, the systems of individuation. And he makes a good point that, like, for example, in, uh, in sort of uh, a smell, an olfactory sensation, certain smells are intense while being vague qualitatively. And, and, and so his point being that, that while quantitatively, qualitatively, uh, certain information may be fuzzy in terms of mathematics, they still harbor a certain individuation that allows the individual to orient themselves in terms of a world. And I think that that's precisely where, where we have to go in terms of um, the body with our organs and in terms of like understanding that the body with our organs um, works on a level of intensity. And of course, Deleuze is trying to like har- harken back to Spinoza um, in certain senses, which we'll leave aside, but it's, it's basically this idea idea that um, what intensity pass, what are the degrees of intensity, what are the disparations, the dimensions, the regimes of intensity that pass and if we can if we can discuss the ontogenesis of that if that's possible then we can discuss uh, this the, the body of the organs with which we concern ourselves as thinkers. That's obviously not an easy task. No, no. Oh my God, no. But thank you for the, thank you for the breakdown, and I'm sure uh, Alyosha is very happy with the response. Hmm? Yes, I'm going to assume yes. Um, and with that, I think we're going to go ahead and. Uh, Go ahead and close out uh, the chapter today. Uh, I do want to thank our special guest, Taylor Adkins. Please go buy all of his translated works. They're all apparent. I have two of them myself. They're quite good, even though he kind of shit on his own work for us. He's excellent, and he really helped us through this discussion. So thank you for joining us today, and thank all of you for being a part of this. Uh, tomorrow, at the same time, we are doing a full review of this section where you'll get to answer and ask every single question you possibly have. Please don't hesitate to volunteer. Hit up any of the admins if you want to help around the server. But uh, for now, we will be taking our leave of you. Thank you guys very much for everything. Um, I also would like to close by suggesting I guess everyone should check out uh, Taylor's podcast. Your talk. 
Oh, please, um, yes. I've been listening to that on and off. I think it's really underrated. Oh, yeah, thanks, thanks, guys. I I appreciate that. I really do. We'll link out to it. 